Yes, this is Palm Sunday, but uh, I tell our people that we welcome Jesus as King every Sunday. And uh, next Sunday, when we worship on Easter, I will remind them, normally what I do is I count how many Sundays there have been in 2015, and my opening remark will be, welcome to the you know, 20th celebration of Easter this year, because every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. We gather because he's alive, and so we welcome him as king every Sunday, and Uh, honor the resurrection every Sunday, but I will take advantage of Palm Sunday to look at Psalm 24 tonight. Listen to God's word, please, as I read it. A Psalm of David, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Look with me for a moment again at verse 5 and verse 6, but especially verse 5. This is what I will focus on in my message uh, this evening. It says, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. I want to talk uh, tonight about blessing from the king, but the chief blessing from the king. Some of you know that when you read Hebrew poetry, Hebrew poetry has uh, one main characteristic to it. The main characteristic of of Hebrew poetry is what we call parallelism. You have line A, you have line B. And you always study those lines in comparison to each other. Line B is not simply a repetition of line A. It's normally expanding or explaining or defining in some way what is said in line A. So when we read verse 5, he will receive blessing from the Lord. Line B explains what that blessing is and, or we might say, even righteousness from the God of his salvation. 
He's talking about the great blessing, the most magnificent blessing. He's talking about the blessing that is the root, uh, the fountain of all other blessings. Blessing from the Lord to the psalmist here is this righteousness, or as older translations say, this vindication. The fact that God declares some who are unholy to be righteous. This is the chief of all blessings. This is what we call a liturgical psalm. It's a psalm that uh, sort of has a temple setting. And the setting is that worshipers are coming to the temple. And there's sort of uh, an interrogation that takes place at the gate. It's like you coming to Sonship tonight and an usher meeting you at the door. And before you can come in, you have to answer some questions. And the questions are, you know, why are you here? Like I said to someone this morning, you know, how are you? She said, I am uh, blessed by the best. (laughs) Well, that's a nice phrase. I didn't have time to inquire, what did she mean by that? Did she mean that she possesses what we call an alien righteousness, the righteousness of God, of Christ, imputed to her, that makes God, that allows God to accept her, and that she's resting in this righteousness, and this is what encourages her and stirs her on, this is what she values, I suspect that if I had probed, she would have told me that she had a good week. Uh, Maybe she had more money this week than the last week. Maybe somebody gave her a gift. Uh, Maybe she got a good doctor report that she's healthy. I suspect that most people, when they think of blessing, they think of stuff that is tangible and temporal. But rarely do we think of blessing from the Lord as this righteousness from the God of our salvation. But this is what the psalmist is talking about. This is what we need from God. This is our chief need. We need this alien righteousness. And when I have this, when I possess this blessing from the Lord, then everything else he brings into my life, I can hold it in its proper place. I can realize that it's temporal. It's satisfying. It's good. It's a gift. But it doesn't last. It's enjoyable. You know, the vacation. You know, my wife and I had uh, the the privilege of going to the DR for five days. And when I got back, someone says, well, are you now well rested? And my response was, well, I was while I was there. (laughs) It's only as good uh, as it lasts. Uh, As soon as you get off the plane, you get in your car, you're back in your world, you know, you're back at it again. It's only as that's all it is. It's a moment of relaxation and fun, but it doesn't last. It's gone. There's only one thing that satisfies day in and day out. And that is knowing that I have this blessing from God, this righteousness from the God of my salvation. 
Therefore, the psalmist says, this belongs to those such as the generation of those who seek him. Who are the ones who have this blessing, this righteousness? They're those who seek God. Who, as he says in the second line, they seek the face of the God of Jacob. Or by that, he simply means they seek his favor. They seek his smile. They seek his that they seek his grace, they seek his presence. Who are those who enjoy this gift of righteousness? Those who seek God. So what I want to talk to you tonight about from this psalm is what does that mean? What does it mean to seek the face of the God of Jacob? Now, as I thought about this psalm, I thought that there's a number of practical uses for it in my own life. One, if, and, and in your life, if you're not a believer, then the flow of this psalm is actually a good gospel presentation. And you will see that. If you are a believer, then the flow of this psalm is a, 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 a story. It's a flow of how you, you live your life every day. This is what the psalm is about. I I tell people that whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, there's only one message, the gospel. If you don't know what it means to be forgiven and have this alien righteousness, you need the gospel. If you are a believer and you're struggling in life, you need the gospel. You need to be reminded again that you have the best uh, for life and for eternity in Jesus Christ. All we have is the gospel. And so it offers in its pattern and its flow a message of salvation for sinners, a message of encouragement. It also helps me as an evangelist. You know, how do I share the gospel in the world we're living in today? And this liturgical psalm, I think, sets uh, a good example of that. What does it mean to seek the face of God? What does it mean to enjoy? How can I enjoy his righteousness and rest in that and live in that and treasure that every day? Let me suggest three things from the psalm. First of all, I must declare God's sufficiency to satisfy my soul. I must declare that when I come to worship, when these Jewish worshipers are coming. Perhaps the priest is standing there and the first thing he says before they begin to engage worship is, you must know who this God is that you're coming to worship. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it. The world and everything in it belongs to this God you're coming to. He established it upon the seas and and built it on the rivers. This is who you're coming to. This is the God who has it all, who owns it all. I need to believe that. Otherwise, why would I come to him? If he can't, if he doesn't have the resources, the ability to satisfy the longings that I have as a human being, the longings that, that are in me by virtue of creation. Not only do I long to be in a right relationship to the world I'm living in, there's something in me that longs for a relationship with God. 
writer of Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. That deep within every one of us is a longing for something that will last. As much as you may like the vacation, as I said, there's this deeper longing for something that will keep on satisfying. The other night I had the opportunity to have dinner with a couple of friends. Uh, They're both Greek. They've been in this uh, country for about five years. They work in the restaurant business and they took me out uh, to eat. And while we were eating and having a good time, I began to talk to them about, you know, where they are in their life. And I'm always amazed that when I use Blaise Pascal's illustration of the empty outline, I'm always amazed at how engaged people are and how agreeing they are that this is true. That there's something deep within me that no matter what I try to put in, no matter how I try to fulfill it, whether it's sex or drugs or money or success or family or good stuff or bad stuff, that it just doesn't quite seem to fit. And I'm telling them about, you know, this is the way the human heart is. And I watch their faces. They agree. Yeah, that's that that's me. Blaise Pascal, as you know, was an 18th century or 17th century French uh, mathematician, philosopher, somewhat theologian. Some of you have read some of his pensies. But he captures the human heart so well. Listen to uh, the paragraph that introduces his idea of the empty outline. He says... All men seek happiness without exception. They all aim at this goal, however the means they use to attain it. The will never makes the smallest move without happiness as its goal. The quest for happiness is the motive of the actions of all men, even of those who contemplate suicide. And yet for centuries past, never has anyone who lacks faith reached the mark at which everyone aims. All men complain, princes, subjects, nobles, commoners, old and young, learned and ignorant, sound and sick, of every climate, of every time, of every age, of every state, all men murmur. What is it then that this eager desire and this incapacity cry aloud to us? What is this? But that man, but that man once possessed true happiness of which nothing now remains except, and here's his phrase, the mark and the empty outline. What Pascal says is that deep within every human being is a memory, a memory of what God intended, a memory of what God 
created us to be, full in a relationship with him, walking in the garden as Adam and Eve, where everything was in perfect harmony, perfect harmony as husband and wife, perfect harmony with the world they were living in, perfect harmony with the God of creation. And this mark, this empty outline of what was, is still part of all of us. There's this longing, we can't describe it theologically, but it's there and that explains why we're on this quest. You know, we're thirsty. We're looking for something that can satisfy. Most of us don't think it's a relationship with God, but when you come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then you know that you've found it. I have found the one for whom my soul craves, the songwriter wrote when I came to Jesus Christ. I've I've found it. It's there. It's, It's real. He says, nothing remains except the mark and empty outline, which he vainly tries to fill with his circumstances, seeking from things ahead in the future, the help which he fails to find in the present, but all of them incapable of giving contentment and joy because, and I love this phrase, the infinite abyss can only be filled by one infinite and steadfast object, that is, by God himself. Deep within you, without Christ, is an infinite abyss. There is nothing, good or bad, that you can fill that abyss with. You will always come up looking for more. The drug addict wakes up the next day and he wants more. I know what that's like. The the moments of sexual promiscuity... They pass and they're often followed by shame and despair. Nothing satisfies that infinite abyss apart from what he calls the, an infinite and steadfast object, God himself. So when you come to worship, the priest is crying out, first of all, know that God is your creator. Know that God possesses, he owns everything. It all belongs to him. He has all the resources necessary. And the implication is, when you understand that God is your creator, that you are either living in repentance before him or rebellion before him. And I find an evangelistic conversation today, it used to be, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, you could talk to people and just, you know, start talking about their need of forgiveness and their sin and how Christ died for them. And, but now I find you really have to go put it all within a big picture that they're living in a world that's not theirs. It doesn't exist simply for their pleasure though it does in many ways exist for that, but it first exists for God's glory. And if you are worshiping the creation more than the creator, then you're living in rebellion. And that's why your life, if it's not messed up today, it will become messed up. 
you need to repent of your rebellion against your creator. So the first thing the psalmist wants us to do is declare that God alone is sufficient to satisfy my soul. And if you've declared that, if that's where you live as a Christian, not just when you come as a sinner to salvation to believe that God can really fulfill the promises he makes, but I need to live that way every day. I need to preach that to myself every day that this is my father's world. Or as we sang in Sunday school, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth in every mine. It's all his. He's God. This is his world and I have the privilege of living in it. And I must live with dependence upon him to satisfy my soul. And if I'm not doing that, then it's evident in my life. If I don't believe in his sufficiency, then I'm anxious. Or I'm covetous. Or I live with regret. Or I'm jealous. Or I'm not willing to forgive or I'm impatient. I'm idolatrous. I think that there are other things that can satisfy me. Now, as a Christian who's tried to walk with Christ for 40 some years, I don't have a real fear that I will ever apostatize, that I will ever say, uh, I'm going to just pursue another God. That's not my struggle. My big struggle is the little moments of idolatry. The thoughts, the choices, the acts, the beliefs, the lust, the anger, the unforgiveness. When there are moments, you know, I could never think of abandoning God as the one true God. But I do that here and there and here and there. And always need to be brought back that This is my father's world. He's in control. He's sovereign. He's the one who created me. And he's the one who can satisfy the deepest longing in my soul. Secondly, I must be a true worshiper. All right, so you've come to grips with God as a creator and you as creation. And either you will repent before him or live in rebellion before him. But do you want to know this God? Do you want to see his face? Do you want to rest in the righteousness, the blessing that he gives you? And if your answer is yes, well, the priest is standing at the door and says, but wait a minute. You may not be able to get in here to meet this God. Because who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And the priest answers, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. And then the second part of that uh, poetic uh, verse sort of does what we call a chiasm. It reverses the two things so that the example of a of clean hands is you don't swear by what is false. That is outwardly, you don't lie. You don't take oaths. You don't depend upon someone else. Or the example of the pure heart is 
you don't give yourself to idols, to vain things, literally, to things that are empty. You don't do that. If you're going to worship God, if you're going to know God's blessing of this alien righteousness that makes you acceptable before him, then you must have clean hands and a pure heart. And so you're stopped at the gate. Because every single one of us says, that's not me. I mean, just from the time you woke up this morning to this moment, not everything about your heart has been pure. Maybe your hands have been, maybe not, but not everything. We've had those moments of anger or selfishness or impatience or lust or Who can enter this holy hill? Who can see the face of God? Who can know this alien righteousness? So the priest puts up a stop sign. As I was at dinner the other night with these two men, both of them are, you know, obviously fluent in modern Greek. And I know a little bit about ancient Greek. So I wanted to test their vocabulary, but not only test the vocabulary, I wanted to uh, engage a evangelistic conversation. So I said to uh, one of the men, do you know the word hilasmos? He said, no. I said, well, it's, it's, a, it's a Greek word. It's in the Bible. And I took out my smartphone and went to my Greek New Testament, went to 1 John 2.2. 2, and uh, I said, you know, here, here it is. And he looked at it. Hidlasmos. He says, I don't know that word, but wait a minute. So he went to his smartphone. And uh, he had a Greek dictionary on his smartphone. And he looked up Hidlasmos. And the translation was propitiation. But he didn't know what propitiation was. But what I found out in talking to him was that, you know, theological language to even native Greek speakers uh, is foreign to them. It's another language. Just like me in a church service talking about propitiation. The average person is sitting there and saying, what in the world? You know, I've never even used that word in, in my vocabulary. But it opened the conversation because he wanted to know, what is this hilasmos, this propitiation, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins? What is that? And so I had the joy of explaining to him that to propitiate means to take away the wrath, to appease, to take away wrath, that God is angry because he's holy. He hates sin. He's justly angry with our sin every day. And there's no way that I can approach God on my own because he's a purer eyes and the look upon iniquity. There's no way I can do that. His anger must be assuaged. His, his wrath must be taken away. 
And Jesus does that by dying the death that you and I deserve to die, by shedding his blood. And his blood is what takes away the wrath of God that I deserve. And these two young Greek men never heard anything like that. Of course, they're their orthodox background, they know about, you know, Christianity as a religion. You know, the one told me that, you know, he's been married here in the States, but he uh, is going to get married in Greece next year because if in a church, because if he doesn't get married in the church, he can't have his children baptized someday. And I said, well, why do you want to get your children baptized? Hmm. That's what we do. Really? That's, that's all. That's a shame that that's all that Christianity is. It's just, it's a tradition. It's what we do. But as they thought about propitiation, this hilasmos, that Christ in his death takes away the wrath of God. So for an Old Testament Jew coming to the temple and the the priests interrogating him and reminding him, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Then that worshiper knew that he needed to repent and confess and take an animal from his flock and bring that to the temple and lay his hands on that animal and have the priest slay that animal in his place. He knew that in order for him to have clean hands and a pure heart, he needed forgiveness. He needed God to cleanse him because no one has that. The New Testament answers is simply this. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can come into the holy presence of God? And the New Testament answer is anyone who's in Jesus and in whom Jesus is. Because as the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus went making the way into the presence of God, not with the blood of bulls and calves and goats, but with his own blood. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. We can come into the holy presence of God, not because we're of pure heart and clean hands on our own, but because we've been cleansed in Jesus Christ and we are righteous in Jesus Christ and we can come into the presence of a holy God without fear of him striking us dead because of our sin. A true worshiper is a worshiper who has integrity. By integrity, we mean wholeness. Wholeness, inside and out, there's a purity. And that kind of integrity only comes as a gift. It comes by God cleansing us from our sin. Not only must I declare sufficiency, not only must I be a true worshiper, But I must welcome his power and his glory. I love the end of the psalm, and obviously songwriters do too, because there are so many great classical as well as newer songs written about this king of glory, this mighty one. So you realize that God is the creator who can sustain and satisfy your soul. 
and that you're unworthy to come to his presence, but he makes you worthy through the sacrifice of his son. Now, are you ready to enter or in the priest's words, are you ready to let him enter? Are you ready to surrender? Lift up your heads, O you gates. But in talking to us, it's removing those barriers of my heart. The primary, primary barrier is simply unbelief, lack of faith. Of course, sin is involved in that. Lift up your heads, open the door. Let, the, let this person come in, but who is he? And the priest says, he's one who is mighty, strong and mighty. He's the Lord, mighty in battle. This one that you are inviting in, this one to whom you are surrendering, is one who is a conqueror. He has defeated your enemies. He's defeated sin and death and Satan. He is a conqueror. He is strong. He's not just a friend, though Jesus is a friend of sinners. But he's a king. He's a powerful, conquering king. Or as he goes on to say, he's the Lord of hosts. He has innumerable armies of angels that only uh, in some physical sense demonstrate the power that he has in and of himself. He is strong. But the question is, do you want to be conquered by him? Do you want him to rule your life? Because in coming to this God who satisfies, coming to this God who provides the way into his presence, we come to him as a king. We come to him throwing down our arms of rebellion. We come to him in submission. Years ago in evangelicalism, there was the debate, they called it the lordship salvation debate. And there were some on one side who said, you know, well, when, you know, you, you get saved, you accept Jesus as Savior, and you're forgiven, and, you know, you're, you may go on, you know, living a rotten life for a while, and uh, maybe even years, but somewhere down the line, you'll come to Jesus as Lord, and then your life will begin to change. I'm sort of simplifying that part of the argument. The other part of the argument says, no, when you come to Jesus... You come to Jesus as who he is. He is both Savior and Lord. Nobody comes to Jesus and says, uh, I want to escape hell. I want to be forgiven, but I don't want to live for you. Now, I know that personally be true because I, I prayed that kind of prayer for a number of years. As, as a drug addict, I would lay in my bed at night and tell God, you know, I don't want to go to hell. I want to be forgiven. And then I would say something like this, but don't let me wake up 
Because I know I'm going to go out and get high again. Because I like it. In none of those prayers did God ever save me. I wanted a savior, but I still wanted to be Lord of my own life. But one night when the spirit of God broke my heart and showed me not only my need of forgiveness, but my need of new life. And I repented. Essentially, I laid down my arms of rebellion and did what Paul said. Paul said, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When you enjoy this blessing, this alien righteousness from God, it's because you've come to him understanding that he's the creator that alone can satisfy you. You come to him understanding that you're not worthy to enter his presence apart from the work of Christ, the blood of Christ shed for your sin. You come to him understanding that he is king and you submit, you bow before him as Lord. And that's how you come into Christ. That's how you live every day of your life. It's the same gospel. God alone can satisfy. It's only the blood of Christ that makes me acceptable in his eyes. And he's king. I need to submit to him and obey. Live under his lordship. This this is the gospel. Whether you're not in Christ, you need to become a Christian, this is for you. If you are in Christ, this is for you. If you're going to sit down and talk to your neighbor or friend, they need to know who this God is, that he can satisfy. They need to know who they are, that they cannot of their own enter the presence of God, but he has made a way through the blood of Jesus Christ. But they need to know that he's strong and mighty. He's a king who conquers not just nations and worlds someday. He conquers lives and souls. Will you bow before him? Sometimes as I prepare sermons, I try to summarize with my very feeble and weak uh, language abilities. I try to summarize in some sort of lyrical, poetic form what this psalm says. And this is what I wrote as I studied uh, this psalm. And I close with this. My heart cries out for blessing and power. His righteousness, my need of this hour. Shall I ascend the mountain of the Lord? Or will I find wrath and a flaming sword? My heart cries out for its need of grace. Will I find mercy if I seek his face? Does God accept sinners such as I? Or at his holy throne, will I die? My heart fears to see God's face. In Christ, I come to the holy place. The king of glory is God's own son. In him alone sin's battle is won. My heart finds comfort in this king. Of his grace and mercy I will sing. The king of glory has conquered sin. The king almighty 
has entered in. Has he entered in? Do you bow before him tonight? If not, come to him. God is such a good God that he wants you to enjoy the delight that the Holy Trinity shared for the endless ages of eternity past. And in Christ, God's inviting you to come into something that is eternal, that you can enjoy that joy of the Trinity. Come to Jesus. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you that in Christ we have come to one who is infinite and steadfast, who fills that infinite abyss of our soul. We thank you that in Jesus Christ we drink living water so that we need no longer thirst again. Thank you for your great love that we sang about, your love that is in Jesus Christ. Father, if there's someone here tonight that is still seeking to fill that abyss by the world, by the creation instead of the creator, help them to realize even in this moment that you alone can satisfy the soul. As Augustine said, you have made us for yourself and our souls will never be at rest until they rest in you. Help someone tonight to realize how unworthy they are to enter your presence, but that in Jesus Christ, you make sinners worthy. And that you are the king. Yes, you will be our friend, but you will be our friend as we bow before you and surrender and lay down our arms of rebellion. Bring some to repentance tonight. And help those of us that know you to live this out daily in our lives, to believe in your sufficiency, to rest in what Christ has done through his death and making it possible for us to live with you, to surrender to your lordship because you are the king of glory. I pray that you would give us all opportunities to share with those in our lives this great invitation that you offer sinners the privilege of entering into your eternal joy. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.